0: This podcast was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. You are listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 147. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 5 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, Go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane is on administrative leave, and she's not handling it well. She got into a nasty accident on the racetrack, thanks to an ill-timed flashback to the gunfight at the end of Things Unseen. Kate walked away, thanks to her suit's protection system, but her swoop is a wreck. Fortunately, Kate has been building a relationship with John, an incubus priest from the Church of Hedonism. John's head priestess has given him leave to spend more time with Kate, including driving her to her appointment the next day with her police psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin. That session didn't go well, either. Kate is being evasive with Jared's questions, which she sees as nosy and irrelevant, and Jared seems to know it. Captain Montgomery has urged Kate to trust the process, but it's starting to feel like she will never be cleared for duty. At the same time, Kate was crashing her swoop. J. William Carrinson was elsewhere in her precinct, observing a dead body. Will is a university student and an aspiring writer, and he went on a ride along with one of Precinct Nine's homicide detectives, Michael Pirelli. The detective found some odd discrepancies in the body they were examining. Though it appeared to be a homeless man who had died from an overdose, the body was too exposed, and there was no sign of drug paraphernalia around the body. A subsequent autopsy would confirm what Michael's partner, Detective Bentley, observed at the scene. The man was apparently the victim of a vampire attack. That makes the death a lightbringer matter, and reluctantly, Michael handed off the case to the Lothanasi. Meanwhile, Will has other matters to attend to meeting up with his girlfriend, the freelance spy and saboteur named Callie Linder. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 5 John was waiting by the curb when Kate exited the station. He looked human again, with deeply tanned skin and red-brown hair. His silk shirt was halfway unbuttoned, exposing his muscular chest. He leaned against the parked skimmer and flirted with an attractive tiger-morph woman in a jogging outfit. The woman was standing closer to John than either propriety or the sweltering weather would have suggested was appropriate. She laughed at whatever he was saying her tail tip twitching back and forth with feline interest. Kate felt a surge of jealousy, then squashed it back down. She had no claim on John. He was a freaking incubus for Eli's sake. If he ever did start feeding exclusively on one person, they'd be in trouble pretty fast. John noticed her, then pulled out a business card and slipped it into the woman's hands, saying something Kate couldn't hear. The woman looked over her shoulder at Kate, giving her what seemed like an appraising glance, before smiling at John again and then continuing on her way. John watched her go, observing the woman's muscular legs and firm buttocks with obvious appreciation. Kate shook her head, giving him a look of mock disapproval. Hungry again already? she asked. John shrugged, looking cheerfully unrepentant there's always room for dessert. His expression grew more serious, his amber eyes scanning her up and down. If he was thinking about asking her how it went, he decided otherwise. Ready for lunch? he asked instead. Sure, she said. Come back to my place, I've got some stuff in the fridge. Suits me, John said, and they got in. Kate's apartment was a short drive south from the Precinct 9 station house, just over the border into the adjacent Precinct 13. The Serenity Arms apartment complex was a venerable place, older than many of the buildings now standing in Metamore and much loved by both its owner and its residents. Its fascia of brown stone covered most of the eastern face of Hughes Tower, from street level to nearly the second skyway and the ornamental columns, heavy wooden doors, and carved lintels above the windows gave it a classic and classy feel. Kate adored the place, as well as its proprietress, Miss Isri Fallon. Lately, though, she found that she was uncomfortable being alone in her apartment. The place had been ransacked back in early April by Imperial Intelligence, and since then it had never felt quite secure. Kate found herself staring up at the canopy of her old four-poster bed at night, even getting up to check the locks on the door. She always knew she had locked them. With her eidetic memory, it wasn't as if she could forget. But sometimes she had to make sure anyway. When John was around, though, she didn't worry about any of those things. She led him into the building through the dusk-level entrance and up the stairs to her flat, though he'd been here enough times by now to know the way. They passed Lug, the Luton custodian, and he waved cheerfully to them as they went by. Kate stopped at the door to her apartment, carefully examined the door jamb for signs of intrusion, slid in the key, turned it silently, cracked the door, listened carefully for several seconds, and finally went inside. The living room windows let in plenty of light so she didn't bother with the switch. Her apartment looked as it always did. Strewn with clothes, books, magazines, vid discs, plates, eating utensils, empty beer bottles, exercise equipment, and the occasional bottle of arcane reagents. She scanned the mess as she picked her way through it and relaxed. Everything was just where she'd left it. Have you considered hiring a maid? John asked. Kate barked a laugh. John, do you have any idea what cops get paid? Or maids, for that matter? Not a clue, John admitted, looking around at the chaos. But I think it would be worth it, assuming she didn't quit in disgust. Oh, it's not that dirty, Kate said dismissively. It's just cluttered, and I know where everything is. John spared her any commentary on that, following her into the kitchen. She opened the fridge, took stock of her supplies, and started making a couple of roast beef sandwiches— John grabbed an apple from the fruit bowl and started munching on it, taking a seat at the little table by the kitchen's single window. So, he said between bites, how was therapy? Kate made a disgusted sound. fucking ridiculous waste of time, same as always. At this rate, Tamlin's never gonna let me back on active duty. She told him about the head games he'd played with her, asking about the flashbacks. Don't know how the hell he did it. Unless he's a telepath or something. John frowned. Do you think he's prejudiced against you for some reason? Kate sighed. I don't know. She shaved slices of sharp cheese off a block and busied herself with arranging them in careful layers on slices of bread. Can't imagine why he would be. He has even more reason to hate the syndicate than I do. The killed his wife, you know. Fuck, John said, seriously. When was this? Kate thought about it. About eight years ago, before my time. Something else occurred to her. You know, her name was Catherine, too. Spelled differently, but... I don't know. Do you think that would affect how he treated me? I don't know him, so I couldn't say, John said. It doesn't seem likely, though, if he's any kind of professional. Is there any way you can get a second opinion? Kate layered the slices of roast beef on top of the cheese. I'm not sure... There are other shrinks on the force, but I've never heard of somebody transferring in the middle of an FFDE. FFDE? Fitness for duty evaluation, Kate said, gesturing vaguely. It's what they call this whole bureaucratic clusterfuck I'm currently caught in the middle of. Mmm. John finished the rest of his apple, nibbling it down to the core until there wasn't a shred of edible flesh left on it. Kate slathered the sandwiches with mayonnaise and horseradish, sliced up a couple of tomatoes to go with them, and brought everything over to the table, along with a couple of bottles of Imperial Red. They ate their sandwiches in companionable silence. Afterward, John sat swirling the remains of his beer. You know, he said, this might not be a bad time to consider a career change. Kate raised her eyebrows at him. Give up? Have you met me? I'm not talking about giving up. I'm talking about changing strategies. You got into this to help people, right? Kate nodded. So, they're not letting you help anyone right now. Maybe it's time for a different approach. Kate set down her bottle. Like what? Well, you've already got the private eye persona in place, John pointed out. What if you became Kathleen Kittredge full-time? Kate smiled. Two problems with that. One, the department pays for the Kittredge persona, so they might be a little annoyed if I start using her for personal gain. Two, private eyes have a lot less financial security than cops. Miss Fallon gives me a good deal on this place, but if I don't get cases, I can't make rent. Fair points, John said, but there's ways around them. If you quit the force, I'm sure you could buy the Kittredge persona from the department. It's not like it would do them any good without you. And as for financial security, you could do contract magic work to fill in the gaps. I've seen your illusion charms. They're fantastic. People will pay good money for that sort of thing. I'll bet I could even get you some study work from the church if you wanted it. Kate looked down at her plate, her stomach a knotted mass of conflicting emotions. She had to admit there was something tempting about the idea of just walking away from Dr. Tamlin and his games saying goodbye to all of the bullshit and bureaucracy. She imagined herself walking the street as a private eye, helping the helpless, answering to no one but her own conscience. It was a compelling idea. She also knew it was mostly bullshit. Private eyes made their money spying on people for divorce cases and tracking down deadbeats who skipped out on their alimony payments. It was sordid, ugly, nasty work, and mostly it didn't make the world a better place. Sure, there were people on the street who needed help, but they weren't the sort of people who could afford to pay for it. Wasn't that the whole reason they had a police force in the first place? I hear what you're saying, she said, covering John's hand with her own. I appreciate you helping me think outside the box, but I'm not ready to give up on police work yet. There's got to be a way out of this that I haven't thought of. John turned his hand over and gripped hers. All right, he said. Just don't let them take away who you are. Don't lose that in all the red tape. Kate smiled. Be what thou art, she asked. It was a common proverb in the Universalist faiths, hedonism included. Exactly, John said. Well, Kate said, what I art right now is horny. You up for a nooner? John smiled. He was. Callie Linder woke to the sound of aggressively cheerful knocking. She wasn't sure how knocking could be cheerful, exactly, but somehow her visitor managed it. She glanced at the clock on the bedside table. One thirty p.m. Well, that was fair enough. She'd gotten to bed by six this time. The knocking continued. Slippers, Callie's two-year-old calico tabby, stood up and stretched beside her in bed. The cat looked at Callie and let out a loud, plaintive meow, as if she were saying, Mom, can't you do something about that noise? I was trying to sleep. All right, all right, Callie said, ruffling the fur on the cat's head. Slippers turned in a circle and stretched again, purring and grumbling in turns. She couldn't seem to decide whether to be happy she was getting attention or upset that Mama was getting out of bed. Callie left her to her own devices and went to the front room to answer the door. As always, she checked the peephole before releasing the locks and opening it. Hi, Callie, Will said, brightly. Are you ready for... He trailed off, looking down at her baggy t-shirt and pajamas. Oh. Did I wake you? Yep. Callie stepped forward, gave him a quick peck on the lips, and grabbed his hands to gently tug him inside. He followed willingly enough, and she shut and relocked the door. Oh, Will said again, sounding disappointed. I thought we were going to lunch after my classes today. Callie winced. Crap, that was today, wasn't it? Sorry, Will, I was up late and I forgot. She didn't know quite how to explain to Will that she'd been up late because she was planting a bomb at a rain distribution warehouse, after which she had spent four hours evading an angry swoop gang who took exception to the loss of their drugs. Will had seen a little of the violence that defined Callie's world, and he hadn't been ready for it. Since then, she had tried to keep him away from the darkest corners of her life. An interesting challenge, since they seemed to keep growing closer together. Well, that's okay, Will said. He took a deep breath, in and out, and with that he seemed to shake off his disappointment. Can I make you some breakfast, then? Callie reached up and touched his face fondly. Throw in some coffee and it's a deal, Tiger. Will put his hand over Callie's, rubbed his fingertips over the back of her hand and down her arm. I could do that, he said. Callie gave him one more kiss, then left him to breakfast duties, while she showered off the night's dirt and sweat. She worked some extra conditioner into her perpetually unruly hair, and used her seldom-touched bottle of depilatory cream to remove the hair from her legs and armpits. As she dried off, she wiped the condensation from the mirror and took a close look at her face. Her eyes were different colors today, one brown and flecked with gold, and the other blue. Will said he liked them when they were like that. It made her look exotic and mysterious. Callie was slightly annoyed when he used words like that to talk about her. They felt like synonyms for freak. Not that that wasn't accurate. Her father had been half celestial, half incubus, a creature of raw chaos, but it wasn't something she liked to think about. Still, Will was sweet and earnest and hopeful, and he helped Callie remember that the world could be amazing and beautiful sometimes. Most of all, he adored her, and he never asked for a thing beyond the pleasure of her company. It was nice to be wanted by someone as more than just a tool, a weapon, or a conquest. Callie walked out of the bathroom with her towel wrapped around her midsection. Slippers danced a figure eight around her feet, chattering loudly about cat things. The smells of coffee, toast, and scrambled eggs filled the air. Normally, Callie would have walked straight out to the kitchen without bothering with clothes, but she knew that Will wasn't comfortable with casual nudity, so she stopped to pull on some panties and gym shorts and a fresh T-shirt. Her breasts were small enough that she didn't really need a bra, so she didn't bother trying to hunt one down in her mountains of unfolded laundry. She gave herself one last look in the mirror, wrapped the towel around her still-drying hair, and headed out to the kitchen. Will had arranged a plate for each of them on the little kitchen table. Scrambled eggs with cheese and green onions folded into the mix, toast with jam but no butter, coffee with cream, brown sugar, and a dash of cinnamon. Everything was exactly the way she liked it. Even more impressively, he'd only had to be told once, and he'd remembered. Mmm... Boyfriend breakfast. Callie ran her fingers through Will's hair and kissed him again before taking her seat. He grinned, looking proud of himself. He bowed his head and mouthed a silent prayer before starting to eat. Even after dating for more than six months, Callie wasn't quite sure what to make of Will's religiousness. It wasn't something she had much personal experience with. She had known Ecclesiasts, and Mariasts and members of the various Universalist faiths, but she hadn't been raised in any religious tradition herself. She knew people on the street who looked to their faith as a source of strength and hope, but to Callie, it had always seemed like somebody trying to sell an invisible product. Resources were scarce in her world, whether you were talking about money, time, or anything else. She was doing pretty well these days— well enough to afford a decent apartment in a safe neighborhood, but her childhood had taught her never to waste effort on something that wasn't going to deliver a return. Will's life had been completely different, as far as she could tell. He'd grown up comfortable, suburban, and in some kind of rebuilder denomination that had organized most of his life before college. As a result, he was polite, respectful, considerate, and completely clueless about women. Six months together, and we still haven't had sex. Not that Will wasn't interested—Gods was he interested—but he wasn't ready, and he couldn't seem to offer a coherent explanation as to why. For her part, Callie didn't push it. She'd had plenty of partners for whom sex was the only thing that mattered, and they could get damned pushy about it. It was sort of nice to take things slow for a change though it would be really nice to get late again. So I was wondering if you have any plans for tomorrow night, Will said, around a mouthful of eggs. Callie thought about it. I was thinking of going down to the races, but nothing solid yet. Why? Will stirred the spoon in his coffee, not looking at her. Well, I was wondering if we could do that research trip I talked to you about. Callie suppressed the urge to groan. It had been a few weeks since Will had floated the idea, and she had hoped he'd taken the hint. Well, I really don't think that's a good idea. Just hear me out, Will said. He looked up at her, and the earnestness in his eyes was almost painful. I went on a ride-along yesterday with the police. We went to this alley on the street, and there was a body... He looked down at his plate for a moment, as if trying to decide whether this was appropriate conversation for the breakfast table. Then he forged ahead. He was in bad shape. A hardcore drug addict. And something had come along and killed him. Just left him lying there on the concrete. Didn't even try to hide what it had done. Callie reached over and took his hand. I'm sorry you had to see that well. I keep telling you, things get bad down here. That wasn't the worst part, Will said. There were tears in his eyes now, and his voice was starting to catch in his throat. The worst part is, the cops only looked at this guy for, like, thirty seconds. The older cop, Bentley? He took one look and said, Oh, this was a vampire. Let the blightbringers deal with it. So I start to argue with them, tell him that he should be a little more careful, that they're only going to get one shot at this. The younger cop starts to agree with me. But then Bentley takes him aside, says something to him, and then it's just over. We get back in the skimmer and wait for the ambulance to come take the body away. Not one person took another look at that crime scene. Not one. Will sniffed and wiped at his eyes. He shook his head. The city is sick, Callie. It's sick, and most of the people don't even know it. My classmates, my professors, the people on TV, they all talk like this is the greatest city in the world. Everybody's so proud of this place and what they've built here. And they don't see all the people they built it on top of. He clenched his jaw. Someone has to make them see it. Callie sighed. I'm glad you feel that way, Will, but come on. You're writing a book. Do you really think that's going to change anything for us street rats? It could, Will said, stubbornly. It's changed things before. Guy Severson wrote a novel about children who were forced to work in the coal mines. It led to the first child labor laws. Jonathan Three Rivers wrote about the indentured servitude of Quinardia's half-elves. He sparked the whole Sylvan identity movement and won equal rights for his people and the humans. He reached out and took her hand again, squeezing it hard. "'Books matter, Callie. The people who make the decisions in the Empire, they read. They talk about what they've read with others. The right book can make a difference.' He shook his head again. "'But my book's not going to be worth anything if it's not authentic. I need to talk to your people. I need to listen to them. I need to hear their stories.' It's the only way I'll ever be able to get this right. Callie looked into Will's eyes. So passionate. So determined. So sincere. He really thought he understood what he was doing. He really thought it would work. He didn't, and it wouldn't, but there was no way Callie could tell him that and make him understand it. He was going to have to figure it out for himself. Maybe, though... Callie could keep him from getting hurt too badly in the process. Maybe she could help him get through the hard lessons waiting for him, with some of his hope and optimism still intact. All right, she said. Tonight I'll take you to meet a friend of mine. You'll be polite and respectful and listen to what he has to say. Don't ask a lot of nosy questions. When he asks you to go away, you go away. No begging, no arguing— no telling him how important this is. Just go. I'm taking you into his space, so you respect his boundaries and follow his rules. Got it? Will nodded so enthusiastically that Callie was afraid he'd sprain something. Got it. Thank you, Callie. Thank you so much. Callie smiled in spite of herself. Yeah, yeah. You're just lucky you're cute, Tiger. They had finished their breakfast and were rinsing off the dishes when Callie's phone rang. Will tossed her the phone and she answered it. Callie here. Hey, calendar girl. What's new? Callie grinned. There was only one person who called her that. Not much, kitty cat. How are you? I heard you took a spill on the course last night. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Kathleen Kittredge sounded embarrassed. I'm okay, but I fucked up my ride pretty bad. Any chance you can help me take a look at it? Sure thing. Bring it to the shop and we'll work on it this weekend. Does Saturday afternoon work for you? Perfect. Thanks, Cal. No worries. Keep it on the bright side, Kate. Callie rang off and set the phone down on the kitchen counter. What's up? Will asked. Slippers had hopped up in his lap and was purring contentedly under his fingers. My detective friend crashed her swoop last night at the races. We're going to see if we can fix it. Detective? Like a private eye? Yep. Will looked thoughtful. Does she work a lot of street-side cases? I think so, Callie said. We try not to talk about work too much. In point of fact, Callie knew that Kate had run afoul of Imperial Intelligence a few weeks ago, which suggested that her investigations ran through some very dangerous territory. But that was exactly the sort of thing she should not be telling Will about. Any chance I could interview her for my book? Will asked. Callie laughed out loud. Will, honey, trust me, you don't want to get mixed up with Kathleen Kittredge. She would eat you alive. Will swallowed hard and went back to petting slippers. He said nothing more on the matter. Thank the gods, Callie thought. Maybe I can keep him out of trouble. And that's the end of Chapter 5. Come back next time for Chapter 6, when Kate gets an unexpected invitation from a very special cop. Richard Peck said, We write by the light of every story we have ever read. So, hold up a few novels for me to light the way, and let's check out the weekly writing report. I wrote 2,897 words last week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 724 words per hour. I wrote on five out of seven days last week. Unfortunately, this week I didn't get any writing done at all. I've been busy juggling a lot of extra responsibilities at work, partly because we've lost three people in the last month or so, and also dealing with things like getting ready for my wedding in a couple of weeks, so I didn't have any time this week to sit down and continue writing. Hopefully next week will be a little less hectic. I've continued outlining for the next Metamore City novel, None Shall Dwell Within. At this point, I'm starting to get antsy to actually begin writing the novel, but I'm holding off because I still have a few key story problems to solve, Right now, I have two major storylines, and three or four minor ones, and I know many of the important moments in each of those story arcs. What I don't know yet is how those arcs fit together. There are triggering events in some of the storylines that depend on other characters taking specific actions, and I don't yet know all of the reasons why those characters are taking those actions. After all, for the story to make sense as a whole, each of its interlocking pieces also have to make sense at least given the information the characters have at the time. So right now, I'm juggling back and forth between the story arcs, trying to figure out what each character knows, when they know it, when to let the readers know what's going on, and what sort of misunderstandings might lead the characters to make decisions that make the whole situation worse. It's a very complicated dance, and I want to at least get the basic steps worked out before I start writing for real. Wish me luck! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, 82 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.